Hello everyone, I'm Lulu. And I'm Kasha. And welcome back to our Histories and Conspiracies podcast. And today we will be discussing the legacy of children who have gone missing throughout history. Why are we so obsessed with these mysteries? Why have they seemingly never been solved? And the patterns in each of their investigations that seem eerily similar. Mm. Um, So, Lulu, what missing children cases do you remember from like your life in the past 21st century? So I think the one that resonates with all of us is, and she, that's because she is quite literally our age, is the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. Yeah. Um, that is the one that I think has captured all of our popular imagination. I don't think there's any missing child case that gets quite as much, using quotations, clout than mm. that. And it still is very much present today. I mean, I was looking... I looked her up yesterday for the purpose of research this podcast and there's still like articles every single day on her or every single week. Yeah. So I think that's one that, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, my parents used to, I remember when I was playing with my friend, um, this was ages ago, I was very little, about eight or nine mm-hmm. and our nanny was um, taking care of me and my brother and my sister in the playground and I just went off for a bit because my friend said she knew this really cool path like behind the fence of the playground mm. and all that happened was I got really muddy Yeah, I got a stick in my shoe yeah. and then I came out and my nanny had actually called my parents yeah. and they'd come to the playground and I literally just got yelled at for about an hour and then I was um, banned from going to playgrounds for a week and I didn't really I thought they were massively overreacting um <laughs> personally i was like i literally just i can so see you like you guys are just overreacting <laughs> um but um they then started talking about my dad then explained to me why he was so vexed and that's when he first told me about madeline mccann and yeah. it really is every parent's nightmare um to have that happen and it's not only her there was um you know there was walter collins back in the 1930s bobby johnson um the um the awful story of James Bolger, even though he well eventually turned up dead. Um so but there is a case of missing children, arguably one of the original cases that sparked so many conspiracies and so much controversy. Um bringing the history in the title of the Histories or Conspiracies yeah. podcast. The Princes in the Tower. Yes, the Princes in the Tower. Many people are sort of familiar with the story but the the true kind of sinisterness behind it and again we kind of this this similar pattern we see of innocent children trusting adults usually adults they know that then end up betraying them or not looking after them this is probably one of our earliest examples of that happening and what the equivalent at the time of, of mass media attention also happening and being drawn to it so the Prince in the Tower, this is the young princes Edward and Richard who disappeared in the summer of 1483. Um, they were born under the intense turmoil of the Wars of the Roses um, under the king at the time, um, but were very protected. So Edward, who was the one who was in line to the throne, um, was kept, you know, out of London, you know, in a, in a town, very protected, had a very, you know, broad education, His what he, how he slept, what he ate who he socialised with, was very controlled. So he brought up to be, you know, as the heir, the most successful heir he could be, to be the healthiest he could be, to be the safest he could be. His brother um, also was very protected, although he lived with his mother and sisters. Um, and actually, 
at the age of four, was contracted to marry the five-year-old Anne de Mombre and became the Duke of Norfolk. So what we see is both these kids from, you know, as soon as they were born, very high profile, mm. already in line to be very successful non-monarchs, contracted to marry people that will kind of broaden the monarchy's alliances and contracts abroad. Um, after the Wars of the Roses, however, their father, Edward IV, died unexpectedly. We don't really know why, of some kind of disease. It wasn't suspicious, is what we know. However, he ensured that his kids would be under the protection of his brother, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester at the time. As, you know, his brother, you would trust him, you trust him with his kids. But what happens after that gets increasingly and increasingly suspicious. So as soon as Richard is in power as the Lord and Protector, um, he immediately starts kind of cutting off the fat. He is distrustful of the court. He is largely unpopular. He is executing his main prospective rivals. And soon after that, he puts Edward in the Tower of London. Now, Elizabeth, who is the widow of the king that just passed, is very, very nervous at this point. You know, this brother who she doesn't really trust is, you know, killing off anyone he sees as a rival. You know, she's taken her son. So she takes all of her other children and herself and they take refuge in Westminster Abbey where they'll be protected. Although not shortly afterwards, the next brother, Richard, was also followed in the Tower of London, again, quote unquote, for their protection. Now, what happens after this, we don't really know. There was sightings of them now and again, you know, playing in the gardens, running around the halls, getting tucked into bed. But it gets progressively and progressively less. And their last sighting, which is sighted in the Great Chronicle on 16th of June, records the children of the king shooting arrows and playing in the garden of the tower. And then after that, there's absolutely nothing. And they're not seen alive again. So naturally, the brother... Richard III, Richard III, who is in line to the throne at that point, gains power. It goes to his strand of the family. And since then, there has been conspiracy after conspiracy. Understand, because this is very, very suspicious mm. about what actually happened to these two boys in the tower, aged just around 12 and 10 years old at the time. But yeah, that's kind of the overview at the moment. Um, there is very much encapsulated in popular culture. Shakespeare wrote a play about Sir Richard III. It is in so many famous art pieces and books and chronicles. There's been imposters around Europe claiming, you know, this is hundreds of years ago, claiming to have been the princes and telling these stories of what happened. It's definitely kind of, if we had tabloids at the time, it would have hit the tabloids. The equivalent of the tabloids, mm. which would have been, you know, these pamphlets and these imposters and these kind of conspiracies were definitely very present. And I think there's a lot of parallels to the Madeleine McCann story. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's worth, disclaiming that i mean these children were the literal sons of the king yeah, like, yeah. they were princes it's yeah. not like they were completely random also um the main kind of the main rival richard iii had to completely securing mm. his claim to the throne because richard iii edward iv's younger brother he did have a son of his own but his son was incredibly weak and i think eventually died of um typhoid or tuberculosis or something like that very young and richard had no heirs left um, and these boys um, were the closest to overthrowing him. I mean, Edward was meant to be king until um, he was declared a bastard, but still kept under wraps. Yes, I actually did meant to mention that. 
So shortly after they disappeared, they were claimed to be bastard and illegitimate children because Edward was originally contracted to marry someone else, mm. which made his marriage with their mother Elizabeth invalid, mm. allegedly. But of course, allegedly. no one's there to say that that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why Richard III has just constantly been the main suspect and everyone's kind of assumed it's him. Um, the evidence, aside from that Shakespeare play, which mm. portrays him as an evil, hun- like, abusive hunchback, basically, yeah. that um, kind of villainized him to history. Um, there are also other suspects. There's quite a popular one. So Henry VII, the Tudor king, the, the starter of the Tudor dynasty who killed Richard III in the Battle mm. of Bosworth and finally seized the throne. Um, his mother, Margaret of Beaufort, was um, married to her third husband who were in court at the time because that mm. husband was apparently... Um, um, he'd apparently sworn his allegiance to Richard, but he was actually um, working with Margaret to put an end on the throne. Anyway, there is um, another theory that they killed the princes mm. to clear the path for Henry's way to the throne. Yes, which should naturally eventually happen. Yeah. It is quite... So there's there's sort of major suspects. He's definitely one of them. And it's all related to succession or kind of social climbing within the court. So Mm. another one is Henry Stafford, uh, the second Duke of Buckingham, who was sort of Richard's right-hand man, court favourite. And many theories suggest that he took it upon himself to murder the boys to gain... Richard's favour. However, this didn't last as Richard later fell out with him and he was executed for treason. Mm. So didn't stay the favourite for particularly long. However, it's interesting, there was another one, um, John Howard, who was also a friend of Richard III, who had custody of the tower at the time. And he later, very conveniently, gained the title of the Duke of York's Norfolk estate. So, you know, could he have done that to, again, have progressed his career in the court, to have progressed his friendship with the king? We don't really know. And then, of course, there is the theories around the line of succession, where it could have been, as you mentioned, Henry. Yeah, a lot to gain for certain people Mm. at the demise of these boys. It wasn't like it was done for nothing. Exactly. But on to Madeleine McCann, Mm. speaking of sort of, conspiracies and demise and motives what what did you find on her right so yeah going to the 21st century um i think everyone listening to this knows who madeline mccann is i think especially people of our generation all will know her name know her face which has been put in the media for decades she's roughly our age she's only a few months younger than you Mm -hmm. so she'd be 19 now she'd be you know she'd be going to university now yeah. she was still here. Um, anyway, so um, she was born, Madeleine McCann was born to two wealthy practicing doctors, um, Kate and Jerry McCann, um, in 2003. She also had siblings. She has twin siblings, a boy and a girl, born in 2005. Um, and in 2007, in May, her parents were holidaying with her and her siblings and also a group of their friends in, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, but I'm going to go ahead, um, Praia de Luz in Portugal, in the Ocean Club. Um, so on the 3rd of May, um, her parents were having dinner um, in the hotel restaurant and they had left Maddie and her siblings in the hotel room. 
and they were having dinner with their friends. Their friends were now known, and for some reason, I know this is a serious case, but I find this really funny. Their friends are known as the Tapas Seven. I know, it sounds like an Enid Blyton book. Like it's it, really, it sounds like a really weird Spanish mafia gang. Yeah. They conduct all their dirty business in a tapas restaurant. It yeah. sounds, yeah. It's, um, anyway, sorry. That's a, that's the very informal name for, because obviously they've been questioned over and over again. Mm. Um, and here is the first part of the case that really sticks out to me. Um, just leaving your kids, your infant kids, in their apartment while you go out to have dinner, which was unlocked. Mm -hmm. And also, wasn't the door left ajar? Like, in their rota for checking on them? Yeah, it, it's odd. So, because um, I'm, yeah, no, looking into that, because I found that really weird as well. Um, apparently, the patio doors could only lock from the inside, so they kept it unlocked so they can go and check. But several times, because they checked like, around every half an hour, uh, several times they checked in half an hour the door was open when they hadn't left it open and for some reason they didn't think twice about it which is really weird because you know even if it's the kid who's going and opening the door you still would then at that point be like actually maybe this isn't safe the kid will wander out or something will wander in or an animal will mm. get in or whatever let alone a person mm. and aside from outside security these are infants Maddie mm. was three her twin siblings were one and I mean what if they'd they could have drowned they could have fallen something they could have been electrocuted what if they've fallen off the surface and broken something like yeah. this just seems like i don't know i mean it's not it's not my place to judge other parents but to me that just seems like a very i i, I can see why a lot of people would find that suspicious yeah. anyway so back Did on the timeline there yeah? was like a crash as well they could have left them in yeah there was a hotel crash um and they chose not to leave them there but it's you know, just, uh, it's, but not to judge the parents. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. not to judge the parents, but I'm judging the parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are some not great decisions. No. Anyway, um, back onto the timeline. So it was Kate McCann's turn in the checking rotor. They'd obviously developed a rotor to, for people to go up and, like, literally, I think they just glanced in the window, saw if the kids were still there and left. And Kate noticed that her daughter was missing. So she called the police and the whole. The whole hotel was mobilised. The staff and the guests were looking for her until dawn. And only until dawn on the 4th of May 2007, when she wasn't found, then the airport staff and border police were notified. Wow. Yeah. And um, by the 26th of May, um, the Portuguese police had released a rough description of a man who may have been seen kidnapping Maddie. And this is an ongoing theme in this investigation. There have been so many profiles drawings and descriptions just chucked in the mix of just this random man but nothing conclusive has well rarely been drawn from any of them that mm. i mean these men could look like about a billion other men on the planet yeah. um it's never been specific and um it's never quite been um it's just never it's just never been specified um and by June 2007, the Portuguese police chief actually admitted that the forensic evidence is of questionable value due to the mishandling at the scene. And we'll go on to like how badly the forensic evidence was treated, but yeah. I just thought I'd throw one out there. And there is a link there also to the recent forensic findings of the princes in the tower, where it just, it's constantly changing the kind of narratives as the technology develops. Yeah. It's really hard to get some something consistent. As evidence. So anyway, by July 2007, British police dogs were sent to Portugal. McCann's rental car and apartment were searched, which we'll go on to later. Mm -hmm. um, by September, the parents were suspects in the Portuguese investigation and they were 
they were put on the Arguido status, which is basically suspect status. Uh, but then they were in the same month, they were released with no charges after mm. questioning. Um, and in November, Jerry McCann, the father, publicly states that a predator, in his words, just a predator, was watching the family the days before Maggie vanished. Which I have no clue how he would know. Um, I'm guessing this is probably a man hysterical through the loss of his child. He probably guessed. Um, but then, you know, statements like these were followed by on the 20th of January 2008, the next year, a British holidaymaker actually claimed they had seen a, quote, creepy man outside of the hotel. Mm. But then again, almost nothing conclusive can be drawn from that. It was interesting because I remember reading the day before their disappearance, Madeline had said to Kate, oh, why didn't you come in on me and my brother when we were crying last night? Um, and the next morning, um, that Kate did say that she'd found a weird stain on Maddie's nightgown, like a brown stain, which, mm. which she then later was like, I feel like someone had gone in a couple, like that night or maybe had had, a, had kind of been watching us as a family for a while because they did the quote-unquote tapa seven, go for dinner at the same night, 8.30, every night at the same place. So mm. hypothetically, if you were stalking the family, you know when they'd be out and you'd know that they'd be leaving the door unlocked and you'd know these things. Um, and there was kind of hints from Maddie's behaviour that she was she had noticed something beforehand that was not right. But not, I don't know, yeah. Not a hard family to stalk. Not a hard family to stalk. No, really not, apparently. Um, so... When did they release that information? Um, I don't know, actually. I didn't actually look at that. I probably should have, just for an appropriate citation. Um, but it's just, I think it was part of her, like, initial statements. Or again, like, you know, the father later on piecing together these things that they hadn't really noticed at the time, but noticed now about people in the resort they could have found suspicious. Mm. It could have been more along those lines. I don't know if it was formally in a police report or more of something she said to the press. That is what really stands out to me about this case. The fact that new kind of witness statements or new um, kind of findings are just released so sporadically over the course of years mm. instead of them just telling the police all of that right at that moment. Yeah. Like, I think that, anyway, um, by um, 2010, Kate and Jerry had made a publishing deal to write a book about the case. Mm -hmm. um, it's also probably worth mentioning that in 2009, 2012, um, separately, um, six-year-old and nine-year-old pictures of Maddie were released, created by AI of what she would have looked like if she was that age. Mm. Um, and different kind of investigations just keep happening over the years. Um, it much more spaced apart. In June 2015, a patch of scrubland was searched near the Ocean Club, but nothing was found. Um, and by September 2015, that same year, the British government disclosed the case had cost them over 10 million. Wow. For one child. Yeah. Um, anyway, everyone will... Um, a lot of people will probably remember this. In June 2020, it was released that the 43-year-old Christian Bruckner, who was already a prisoner, um, who was already in prison for rape, was made a suspect in the case. And the German police, um, because, of course, Christian Bruckner's German... The German police publicly stated that they are treating it as a murder inquiry and they personally believe that Maddie is dead. Wow. Um, I think everyone remember that. Um, I remember that when all those memes were coming out about 2020 and then I think someone said, 
oh, the last thing 2020 needs to do is solve the Madeleine McCann case. Yeah. And then a month later, that came out. Yeah. Oh, oh my God, I remember that. And yeah, no, I, I remember like one also reading that and being like really disheartened because I think because there's obviously she hasn't been found, there's always been this um, hope in the popular imagination that she's there, she's somewhere, someone had picked her up or, you know, of course it's a very horrible thing to go through, but she could still be alive. Um, and mm. then that coming out was really, that really, I mean, it didn't end up squashing the rumours because as if I'm correct, they didn't actually confirm anything from him. Mm. Did they? No, he's no. still under investigation. I mean, we'll go on to kind of suspects um, in a bit more detail for both. But the only real evidence they have on him is that he was in the area at that time. Actually, unfortunately, raping other girls and other women. Yeah. So he was high profile in the area at that time mm. um, doing other stuff. And he could have done this. He could be involved. Mm. Um, but that is literally the closest they've come in all these years um and by last year april 2022 um the portuguese were investigating him alongside um the german authorities mm. and that is all we know on the case so far so yeah. what hearing those two cases side by side and we'll go on to a little more detail about other sporadic child um disappearance cases in a minute one element that really sticks out in the investigation of all of these to me is the um, certainty of the involvement of family, particularly yes. parents or close relatives, um, that they doubtless have something to do with this child's um, disappearance or, God forbid, death. Um, which, you know, it's a very dark route to take, but unfortunately, in most solved child's disappearance stroke murder cases, that unfortunately has tended to be the case. Yeah. Um, so why do you think that is? I mean, who... Um, we've already... Um, do you want to go in a bit more detail about the main, the two main or three main suspects of Princess of the Tower? And I can talk about um, Maddie's parents and why yeah. everyone's so suspicious after that. Yeah, no, of course. It, it, so it's interesting, that point of family. Um, we went through the main, few of the main suspects earlier about the Princess of the Tower. But there's one more that I want to point out. And again, this links to family. It is Margaret Beaufort who was the mother of the future King Henry VII mm. um, and the paternal grandfather to Henry VIII, um, paternal grandmother to Henry VIII, sorry. And she was known as being very intelligent. She was known as being very cunning and very manipulative Lancastrian matriarch who would have done anything to ensure that her son Henry was next in line to the throne, um, even if it included infiltrating her Yorkist enemies, if it meant murder, if it meant child murder, it wasn't put past her in the popular imagination. Um, and it's interesting here because her, alongside the other people we discussed, is a lot of the time it is friendship and family. It's the people these boys would have known. It's the people who were the guardians to these boys, um, who were blood relatives or um, more like distantly connected in the family who could have brought in them to kill them or to kidnap them and put them somewhere far away who we don't really necessarily know however what i find very interesting about margaret who is the only key suspect who is a woman in this case mm. is it was about her taking initiative um to progress the career of her son so of course as we mentioned Harry Sanders is a subject suspect himself but this idea that she kind of more in the background she's less known as a figure in this case but would have had an equal amount of passion 
um, as Henry may have for this power dynamic because it is kind of the, the career of her son. Um, and you can make the argument that your parents would be just as passionate as you would, um, could have potentially pulled this off and had the incentive to do this. Potentially, you know, being one of the few women who would have been around the boys could have potentially trusted her more. Mm. It's, it's a very interesting person to look into. But um, what is very clear is that the three main people here who are suspected, which is Richard III, Henry VII, and Margaret, are all relatives. Um, somehow, you know, distantly or, or close relatives. And you can't really put it past that they probably have the strongest incentives. The other two suspects who were kind of trying to gain favour with the king, you know, potentially, I mean, it's valid. They're important to look into. They're important to discuss. But if you think about, like, what it takes as a human being to do something like that, mm. um, most people aren't even capable of it. But if it's just because you want to close in a friendship with someone in power, mm. I just don't feel like that's convincing enough as a motive. Mm. Whereas these three, despite being a lot closer to them, would have had a very, very strong motive to do so. Mm. I mean, it's insidious and sinister, but it's a lot more convincing than the other two who, you know, wouldn't necessarily have been as close to the boys. Mm. Um, but yeah, the suspecting family, and, and it's interesting, and I felt I feel this way with the Madeleine McCarran case slightly, um, and with other cases where the parents or the uncles, aunties, or whoever have been suspected. It must be so horrible if, you know, as a family member, you're completely innocent to be under that scrutiny, because you mm. always will be. But for that percentage of the time where, you are literally just the grieving family member or the anxious family member being suspected. It must be very difficult. It's kind of like when, um, you know, the percentage of a time when a wife is murdered, it's the husband or vice versa. You know, to be in the proportion where you're literally just the grieving widow or widower and you're being interrogated, it must be really, I don't know, horrendous, especially with Madeline specifically. And I'm sure with this, where there was so much media attention. But what, what do you think about suspecting the family? Do you think that's kind of, who would you say your key suspect would be? Well, um, it's quite hard in this case because um, the only real publicised suspect we had that was not family was, of course, Christian Bruckner. And that's in very recent years. But um, this case has just been very hard to pin anything down. And um, I think that's why so many people have gone to the parents as an explanation but also, um, these parents, whenever I saw pictures of them on TV, um, being interviewed, giving press interviews, um, asking people to find their daughter, they did appear very, very distressed and in a lot of pain and a lot of anguish. Um, and ordinarily, I would believe that. But then I actually looked and read reports into why people suspect them so much. And some of their behaviour um, not before and even during the investigation. It's really odd. Really? What what was it? Well, um, for a start, we've already talked about the complete lack of security. They left their infant yeah, children. That, that is strange. It's strange mm. as hell. Mm. The most popular theory, actually, is um, an ex, a former Portuguese detective, Goncalo Amoral, published a book called The Truth of the Lie, where he stated that Madeleine McCann had not disappeared, she was actually dead. And that Kate and Jerry, so the parents, were responsible. And Kate and Jerry sued this detective for libel, but the court, the European Court of Human Rights actually refused to acknowledge that their privacy rights had been disrespected. 
Mm. And they denied the suit. Wow. So why would this Portuguese detective, so this is obviously someone who worked on the Madeleine McCann case, why would he think they had anything to do with it? Well, um, as we said, poor security, didn't use the Hilltail crash. The most popular theory is that because they were both doctors, they were both physicians, was that Kate McCann actually sedates her children so that they would go to sleep and she accidentally gave Maddie an overdose and they've been trying to cover it up. Um, so what was so strange? Um, the forensic evidence for a start, there was um, blood evidence in the rental car of the McCanns, the rental car they got after their daughter went missing, not while they had her. Um, the sniffer dog sparked once in the parents' bedroom Another in the entrance to the back patio. I don't think it was too suspicious. So of course, that's where Maddie would have been. It was probably just where they're picking up her scent. But they also barked on the clothes that Kate McCann was wearing at the time of the investigation, not the time that she had Madeline, mm-hmm. and on one of Maddie's toys, which Kate McCann had been carrying around with her. Um, also, here's something that really um, stuck out. I didn't know that Kate McCann... So when they had been um, arrested as suspects by the Portuguese police um, in September 2007, that Kate McCann had outright refused to answer, not said she didn't know, refused to answer 48 questions by the police. Jesus. And these were... When I looked at um, these 48 questions, these aren't exactly... These are pretty straightforward. So here are some of the questions that she refused to answer. When you entered the apartment, what did you see? What did you do? Where did you look? What did you touch? And another one was, how were the authorities contacted and which police force was alerted? Another one she refused to answer, what is your medical speciality? Oh. Mm. That's that. So she could have like hypothetically been an anaesthetist. Well, hypothetically. Um, Another um, question she refused to answer. Assuming Madeline was abducted, why did you leave the twins to go to the tapas and raise the alarm? The supposed abductor could still be in the apartment. All of these questions and, well, dozens other, she just refused to answer point blank. And then they were let go. Um, Now, I understand that you're a grieving parent and you're obviously very distressed and this is very tough for you, but... um, Surely, if you were not guilty, you'd have nothing to worry about. I mean, you would want... Surely, if you were uh, a distressed, grieving parent, you would want to cooperate as much as possible. Even if it didn't make you look particularly great. You already don't look great because you left your kids in a hotel room and you didn't lock the door. Hmm. So, hypothetically, if you, you know you know, went into the room and you touched things that could have been forensic evidence and it was a bit of a mess and it was a bit of a shambles. Mm. And maybe it doesn't, it's not very helpful, but you would say. So that's really weird. That's definitely really weird. That is definitely very weird. I mean, um, but there is, um, there is a massive elephant in the room here, which I do agree with. This doesn't add up to me. If they did actually kill their child purposefully or accidentally, surely you'd want as little attention drawn to it as possible. But they have dragged this investigation out for decades, well, almost two decades now. Mm. Um, And I just find it, um, you know, they've constantly kept it in the public eye. Um, They've given interviews. They've published a book. They've um, given press conferences. Um, They actually, 
sued, you know, they cost the British government £10 million pounds in trying to find their daughter. Mm. They sued an ex-detector for libel to not just any court, the European Court of Human Rights. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't know, to me, this sounds like if they're just kind of trying to cover up, like make sure it, people will think it definitely wasn't them, that, that, that's going a little bit overboard. I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. No. I mean, unless you want to take, which is what kind of, I mean, I haven't done as much research as you have into um, the perceptions of the parents, but like some people, which I also like, I would highly doubt, but it's important to acknowledge, um, argue that they could have done something to Madeline intentionally for kind of being immortal in the eyes of the media or in history or to gain money. Um, because if you go on the free Madeline website, which is run by her parents, the first thing you see was purchase our book. Oh, that's such a weird website. Which is re- and it's a really, really weird website. It doesn't feel that serious. Um, it's all kind of about, you know, buy our books, buy our posters. You know, there's a whole about mm. us page. Like it's, it's very, very strange. Um, I think they also, they, they, they sell like specific things. Of course, like, a lot of it is in to like raise money to find her, but where a lot of that money goes, I don't know. I mean, how how much do they make from this book deal? Like, you could say if they if they're true villains of people, like, could they have done it purely for that? But then again, it's important to like respect the fact that they are human beings, they are parents, and that's very unlikely. I think it's also I think it's also important to talk about um, forensic the forensic evidence and how that was mishandled because. Um, am I right in thinking that if we link this to Madeline, you know, there was um, there was all sorts of the Portuguese police. Uh, I say this objectively, handled it really badly. The crime scene was trampled several times, so footprints and blood, whatever, that could not be properly collected. Um, evidence was either mishandled or lost. Um, there was, um, yeah, they did a pretty, <laughs> they did a pretty shocking job. Um, but onto the princes, back to the princes of the tower. Um, what? two skeletons two children's skeletons found in the tower yes um, and haven't there been hasn't there been quite a lot of discussion about that or yes that's that is that is very interesting actually um so basically about 200 years after the murders or disappearances of the twins in the tower in about 1674 king charles ii ordered the demolition of the royal palace in the tower um to be turned i think into a chapel or some other piece of architecture so anyway, beneath the foundations of the staircase, there was um, a wooden chest containing two skeletons and it was they were clearly the bones of children. So this was sort of assumed at the time to be the bones of the missing children, mm. um, the two boys. Mm. Um, in 2012, more sophisticated forensic tests were able to... Um, identify these bones as the king as the the king and the well not the king but the two princes mm. however um since then there has been doubt casted over this finding because mm. for example there was not test conducted on the gender of the body so we got the age and the age was accurate to when the boys would have died but mm. we don't know whether or not they're boys or they're girls um additionally it was claimed that the children's skulls showed evidence of a congenital condition that caused missing teeth that they would have inherited from their paternal grandmother, Cecily, Duchess of York. Mm, that's quite specific. However, yeah. 
which is, I mean, but to be fair, it, it's interesting because as we know, in European dynasties, due to a lot of like inbreeding and incest, that mm. is quite normal for these kind of conditions to be developed. And that's why mm. when we find a lot of bones, um, we're able to, when, when it's a royal family, we're actually able to identify it quite easily because they would have had strange and um, rare conditions. Uh, however, um, one found that these boys also had um, something similar to scoliosis, a curvature in the spine that's been recorded. However, in the forensic analysis, that wasn't found in the, in the skeletons. So we have some things that have been found and some things haven't. And it's very hard to tell, obviously, because when these bones were initially found, they weren't necessarily like well-preserved or well-taken care of. We didn't have our kind of modern technology around preserving bones that we do now with archaeologists. Mm. Um, and there's some things that suggest it's there, and there's, something, and there's some just massive gaps, like gender. So this is literally, this sounds, um, this is a similar kind of, um, a similar kind of atmosphere to the McCann case, to the parents. Mm. So many things that kind of say, yeah, it's them, and then other things that just don't make any sense if it was them. Yeah. Um, that make these cases, and cases of other missing children, just so hard to crack. Um, and it's also that, like, children, unfortunately, do go missing very frequently. Mm. And if we're looking back to, like, this period in England, Wars of the Roses, you know, I mean, when we didn't kind of have... When also when you just, like, disease was very common and accidents were common and medicine was mm. very primitive, it's like, children... People died in childhood all the time. So if there's a chest of the bones of two children in the Tower of London, that isn't necessarily abnormal. Um, so again, it's very difficult to tell then, and clearly it's very difficult to tell now to get accurate evidence in a lot of these cases. But yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted you, but I'm no. saying. <laughs> no, no, you're completely right. I was actually going to um, go on to that. Um, so now that we've discussed these two case studies in mm. quite a lot of detail, um, why do you think these cases, I think these are the two most famous cases of missing children in history. One, medieval, and one extremely immediate 21st century but as you said there are loads of other missing children um and other cases which are somewhat famous and some that have not been heard of at all um why do you think these cases are so famous um why do you think um the kind of genre of missing children captivates people so much and also what makes other missing children less likely to be looked for than others yeah, it, it, there's a lot to unpack there, definitely. Um, I think the cases of the Princes of the Tower, it's slightly simpler than with Madeleine Buchan because, of course, they were in the line of succession. Mm. And when they died or disappeared, um, that permanently altered the line of succession and eventually you know, gave way to the Tudor monarchy, um, which, of course, as you know, we all learn in school, is a very significant time in our history. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot associated with, you know, what was going to happen if they, how things would have been different if they had survived, how things changed, the kind of, especially the religious aspect of the shifting between different attitudes of the monarchies um, and kind of, yeah, the consequences of this. Um, I think there's also an aspect of they're so um, captured, they're so immortalised in the popular imagination, again, through these plays and through these books and through this artwork, which... Partly it's understandable because they were royalty, but there's also an aspect, and I feel like this happens with a lot of missing children cases, where they're seen as entertainment or it's seen as 
captivating or interesting and we forget that they are actually, you know, two 11 and 12 year old boys who mm. something happened to them. We don't know. The, the, the adults that they were supposed to trust um, betrayed them. They weren't protected as they were being claimed to be. And it's very, very tragic. And the kind of the immortalizing it in Shakespeare and in art and, you know, these days through further research, it, it almost dehu- is quite dehumanizing. Because it's like it's seen as this kind of you know Agatha Christie who done da 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 when and I feel like this is kind of a similar thing you know when you look up Madeleine McCann all you get is tabloids now she's a child she should have more serious attention than tabloids so why yeah. does this happen what do you think I, that is a very good point when I was doing my research on um, M, Malaysian Airlines three seventy um, for our last podcast um, uh, much of the stuff that came up was from actual academic articles when they were discussing the physiochemical properties of the lithium batteries or the impact on politics from suspect um, suspicion of a terrorist attack. But when I looked at Madeleine McCann, it was just all the mirror, Daily Mail, The Sun. Oh, a woman who claims she's Madeleine McCann has lived in the forest feeding off berries or something yeah. like that. Um, but I actually, I did look this aspect up. Why is Madeleine McCann so famous? Well, infamous rather. Why is she drawn so much attention? It's partly because of her parents. Her parents are incredibly wealthy. They're well-connected. They have put this in the public eye for years and years and years. Um, But also, I read this um, article by a criminologist called Dr. Elizabeth Yardley from Birmingham University. And she argued that the reason the world is so obsessed with finding her is, quote, "Um, she embodies the concept of the ideal victim, someone seen as completely innocent, vulnerable, and deserving of our sympathy. And then she discusses the hierarchies of victimization. There's a kind of gender and racial bias mm. in what children get looked for and what don't. Madeleine McCann is a pretty little white girl from a middle-class family, and apparently that garners more public sympathy um, than, let's say, a working-class male child, according to her argument, a working-class boy who is ethnically diverse. Do you... Um, can you think of anything um, yeah. to wrap around that? I think so. And I think, you know, this isn't necessarily to do with children, but this was something that was brought to attention during the Sarah Everard case, which very recent, mm. where it's like people saying like, look, police brutality towards women of colour is very common. And, mm. you know, women of colour disappearing and you know and 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 there being police involvement or it being very suspicious or it being very brutal it happens so frequently but as soon as it happened to a white young woman everyone in the nation was in tears it was mourning and you know there was so much media attention and there's so much brought to it and the kind of of course what happens there was absolutely horrible and it's, it's important we know about it but why don't we know about all these other cases and I think that's kind of a similar thing with Madeleine McCann where, you know, of course, it's very important to find her, but all the other children that go missing that don't get, like, even a shed of media attention. Yeah. And why is that? Well, usually it's something to do with racial bias. And yeah. Things like that. There's also the kind of, I think, another aspect to the kind of um, absolute friend, media frenzy that circulates around this is the recently discovered modern horror story of paedophiles yeah which um weren't publicly acknowledged um as an actual wasn't publicly publicly acknowledged as an actual term until well the 20th century um, really yeah um 
So, of course, one of the main theories around Madeleine McCann um, is that it was a paedophile sexery who just um, stole her. It's the work of paedophiles. I mean, Christian Bruckner um, is a paedophile. He indecently assaulted an 11-year-old girl and a 14-year-old girl. Um, he also um, raped a 20-year-old Irish woman. Um, and, of course, that's kind of like a horror story or a nightmare that seems to circulate that, unfortunately, the press seem to feed off of. But, um, of course, there was a criminal profiler, a New Zealander criminal profiler called Pat Brown, who dismissed it entirely, giving a very good reason, which is that um, the Ocean Club is the wealthiest estate in that area of Praia de Luz. Um, there are actually quite a lot of um, much less wealthier housing, um, possibly some people even call it slums nearby. Um, and she argued it would be far easier to just steal a child from a drug addict or a prostitute rather than breaking into a wealthy hotel, stealing the daughter of two well-connected British doctors who undoubtedly cook up a massive investigation. That's a huge risk. Um, so I do understand that. Um, but it's kind of um, this fear that there are people out there to get children, kind of this um, in it, this immediate desire to protect them. Mm. Um, I mean, if you look at other, uh, if you look at, you know, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, Yes, um, kind of the origin story. Mm. It's interesting, actually. Um, so the Pied Piper of Hamelin, many people have heard the phrase Pied Piper before, um, but few know the myth behind it. And I actually didn't know the myth behind it or the, the legend behind it before researching for this podcast. And it was about an a incident in the year of 1284 um, where 130 children born in Hamelin were allegedly seduced away by a piper dressed in all kinds of colours and playing magical and mystical tunes on his pipe. So it's kind of something that later was, again, producing a lot of art and a lot of kind of like stained glass art specifically in churches. Um, and then, of course, now it's kind of a phrase we use in common parlance about Pied Pipers. Mm. Um, but, there's, you know, there's, there's town chronicles that refer to it where there's an entry from... 1384, which states it's 100 years since our children left us. And, you know, there's there's been some, like, research conducted over the years. There's mm. no real, like, again, agreed explanation. So some think that they died of natural causes, uh, such as the plate, and um, the Pied Piper sort of, like, representing a figure of death taking these children away. There's ideas that it could have been something like a landslide. Mm. Um, however, this story, like, it encapsulates the sort of, of course, you know, the the term of uh, pedophile and predator wouldn't have been used at the term at the time, but d dangerous men seducing children away, and you know, it kind of never being found or never being resolved. This is probably, I'd say, at least from what I found, the earliest reference to it. Hmm. But it's very interesting that it wasn't taken seriously as a thing until the twentieth century. Yes. Um, I mean, like you said, medieval times when the Prince of the Tower disappeared, child mortality was very high, child disappearances, um, very, um, a lot of poor families suffering from lack of food, poor hygiene and spread of diseases. Um, I guess only when you get into this kind of 20th, the 20th century. Um, and also actual psychological problems. Psychology as a science begins to be investigated. Um, anyway, to wrap it up, because we are coming to the end of our time here, yeah. Um, so, I mean, 
let's just do our little conspiracy thing. Princess of the Tower, what do you think happened? Uh, Princess of the Tower, I think it was, as I'm, yeah, I mentioned earlier, someone in the family. So it was either Richard um, or Margaret, I would say, are the most convincing people to me to have mm. the motives. I actually find Margaret particularly convincing because she is the one who had the most motive but was the least family connected. Um, mm. However, I wouldn't put it past where it was a group effort. Mm. I mean, how can two heirs get away and it be a one-man one man job? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I would actually, I revise my conclusion. I think it was a collective effort from the royal family and the court to deviate the line of succession. What about you? What do you think happened with Madeleine? God, you know, this is just... <laughs> I think it's just the total lack of a physical body which really gets me, even after all these years. And the Prince of the Tower skeleton's been discovered and even problems with that suggesting they're not. Um... I just get the feeling that if she was dead, perhaps some sort of remains would have turned up by now, but they haven't. It's like she's complete. It's like the plane we did last. It's like the Malaysian Airlines plane we did last week. She, it's, she's just totally vanished off the face of the earth from mm. a apparently secure location. Um, so what happened? Um, do I blame the parents? I am not sure because, as we said, very 50-50 in terms of stuff um, accusing them and stuff ruling them out. Um, do I believe it was a paedophile sex ring or could she have just had an accident and it's being covered up? Um, if I was to choose, I would go with, um, an accident or something happening to her, um, and someone else covering up, perhaps not the parents, maybe one of the tapas seven, mm. who knows? Um, but I just find it very hard to believe despite all the stuff against the parents, that they would drag it out for this long in the public eye if they indeed had anything to do with her death. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, and why are we so obsessed with missing children? From media obsession to fear <laughs> of it happening to, seems like the public kind of feeds on it, doesn't it? It does. The, the public feed off disaster. And it's something that I think we sort of like, people have to, we all have to acknowledge in ourselves of, um how we consume media i think you know weirdly this kind of links a bit to like megan and harry etc it's like mm. it is something the british public and the tabloids loving disaster happening mm. to innocent people and something that we kind of have to kind of address is should we be you know clicking on daily mail mm. you know to find our information or are we kind of feeding this idea of glamorizing really horrific events or turning it into some kind of entertainment. Um, but I think that's all we have time for. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank you, Pleasure. Yeah, that was a very interesting discussion. Thank you so much, Judy. We all will right. see you next week, but thank you everybody for listening um, for our fourth podcast of this series. Perfect. Bye. Bye. Bye.